electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort in D.C. today. Is time running out for TikTok? Maryland and Texas ban the app on government devices while Indiana sues over safety concerns. Then Elon Musk's bankers reportedly considering Tesla margin loans to cut that risky Twitter debt. Tesla has lost nearly a quarter of its value since Musk became chief twit. Plus, two more earnings exclusives. The CEOs of C3AI and HashiCorp are with us in just a few moments, John. Yeah, we're going to start, though, with Salesforce. That stock is down nearly 20% in December alone. Losses accounting for about a quarter of the Dow's decline in December. This morning, Baird downgrades to neutral. The concern growing in part because of the recent exodus of top executives and questions about the company's ability to execute. This morning, the Journal also reporting that tensions had been growing between co-CEOs Mark Benioff and Brett Taylor for months before it was announced that Taylor was stepping down last week. Now this morning, Salesforce looking to shift investor perception. The Salesforce World Tour kicking off in New York City as we speak. And Frank Holland has been in the room as CEO Mark Benioff delivers his keynote, has some highlights for us. Frank, what's he saying? Yeah, you know, CEO Mark Benioff speaking right now, very upbeat tone by Mark Benioff and very much sticking to the talking points about Salesforce successes and the future growth of the company. I had a chance to speak with him very briefly, shake his hand. He gave me a wink. He was very much the rock star of Wall Street that we all know Mark Benioff to be walking around the room with thousands of people in that room, definitely making a point to make eye contact with different people and be very personable. Of course, the elephant in the room is those high-profile departures of not only co-CEO Brett Taylor, but also the CEOs of Slack and Tableau, also the chief strategy officer leaving about a month ago. Um, Mark Benioff did not reference those departures at all. Definitely talked about the unified community of Salesforce. Anybody that knows the company knows Right now, where I'm at right now, we're at the campground, and the company definitely tries to have a communal uh, situation when they gather together. He was very upbeat and talking about not only the successes of Salesforce, but the growth of it, but both the organic growth and also the inorganic growth. Definitely referencing some of the acquisitions they've made in recent years that include, of course, Brett Taylor's Quip back in 2016 and, uh, and the acquisition of Tableau back in 2019, the acquisition of Slack last year, multi-billion dollar deals. Um, something that he was obviously very proud of, talking about just the success. But it's hard not to talk about the stock and the reaction to some of these departures. You're looking at it right now, the declines in the stock, uh, especially when it came to the departure of Stuart Butterfield of Slack and also the CEO of Tableau. Something that we're, we're hoping to hear from Mark Benioff here is just the future of Salesforce when it comes to some of their targets. Um, on the earnings call just uh, on November 30th, he mentioned the hesitancy of many CEOs to close deals with Salesforce due to the possibility of an economic downturn in the future. You also talked about a big shift in Salesforce's business. Um, I had to step out of the room. We haven't heard anything about that just yet. But when it comes to that slowdown that he mentioned, there's some other things coming up that are kind of running contrary to that. If we have it, a half-screen board of Sienna's uh, stock performance just yesterday, their earnings um, signaling a very bullish demand going forward. 
and also uh, the performance of Cisco and Juniper Networks, two device makers, signaling that there is still strong IT spending, but perhaps not in the cloud. Uh, so again, right now, Mark Benioff speaking right now to a few thousand people upstairs, something we'll continue to monitor. Back over to you. Frank, and I think that's the issue. I think that Wall Street is trying to figure out, is this a macro backdrop slowing problem or is this a Salesforce specific problem? And that's really on display now with all of these executive departures. Um, there was that Wall Street Journal piece yesterday um, talking about sort of the tensions growing between Benioff and Taylor before, Benny, before Taylor's departure. And there was a paragraph that suggested perhaps Benioff was maybe having a difficult time sharing the spotlight. It had a few examples at Davos where Brett Taylor was asked a lot about Twitter and, you know, Benioff is used to having the sole seat at the big table with government officials and other CEOs. Do you think that maybe, and of course, Keith Block before this was co-CEO and he left. Do you think this is a problem with Benioff being able to share the spotlight? Well, you know what? I can say for sure today he really enjoyed being in the spotlight. I mean, as I mentioned, <laughs> he he's a rock does. star here in the corporate world. Yeah, he's, he's like a planet with his own gravity. People are certainly gravitating towards him. And he goes out of his way just to kind of have a personal touch with different people. As a matter of fact, shortly before I came down here, uh, his high school friend, who he's hired to work for the company, in all fairness, he's also, he also was a Stanford computer science professor, but his high school friend was making a presentation. So he definitely enjoys the spotlight. So I was also at Dreamforce where the two of them seemed very much aligned. I mean, you didn't see any signs of tension when the two of them were speaking at Dreamforce just a few months ago back in San Francisco, the company's giant uh, annual event um, with, has a theme very similar to the one that you see here behind me. Um, I had also a brief moment to speak with Brett Taylor. Then I, I kind of pulled him to the side and I said, hey, I'd love to get to talk to you as well. And he seemed very excited about Salesforce's business and the future interacting with the community. So no signs of that tension that the Wall Street Journal references when I got to see them in person. But certainly, Mark Benioff, he definitely enjoys the spotlight. Uh, well said, Frank. Uh, pretty fascinating uh, development regarding CRM. We'll talk more about it this hour. It's not just the Salesforce that's under pressure. Tech is on pace for the worst week this month, although seeing a sharp rebound today. Our next guest points out that the short-term answer for gains could lie with small caps and European tech with less outperformance over the past few years. They've got less ground to make up to return to former levels. Joining us this morning, Bespoke's uh, co-founder, Paul Hickey. Paul, great to have you back. Uh, before we get to small caps in Europe. Let's just talk broadly about the fact that we got a bunch of inflation indicators on deck starting really tomorrow. And I wonder if those do come in cool. What is what's the potential upside for tech? Yeah, so I mean, I think uh, you have to look at tech in two time frames. Short term, I think there's a number of positive uh, catalysts that could be working in favor. And you just touched on one of them. There isn't a day that goes by nowadays where there isn't an inflation indicator that's showing easing inflation pressures. Uh, we're coming into the PPI tomorrow, CPI next week, and then the Fed uh, on Wednesday. Just, just looking at CPI over the last uh, the November report, which was re released in December, that has come in weaker than expected more than any other month going back to 1998. So you have a seasonal bias um, in favor of a weaker CPI, plus the fact that we were just talking about all signs, all price, pricing pressures are easing. So that sets up the scenario where the Fed can talk a little bit more uh, dovish next week or not be as hawkish um, and spook markets. So I, I think that could be a positive short-term setup. And that coupled with the fact that sentiment has gotten weak uh, for the sector, you have it reaching short-term oversold levels on a breadth uh, basis. And then also 
as you were touched on in the intro, tech is off. The Nasdaq is off to its worst first week of December, going all the way back to 1975. The only two years <laughs> that were worse were 1974 and 1975. So that's pretty bad. Consolation, two consolations. Those two years, those two Decembers, the Nasdaq finished up the remainder of the month after that negative down week. And what people forget about December overall and the Nasdaq specifically is that it's a back-end loaded month. Um, like the overall market, the first half of December, the Nasdaq has typically seen negative returns and it's been up less than half the time. In the second half of December, it's been up an average of median of 2% with um, gains three quarters of the time. So I think in the short term, while there's looming issues, a longer term for tech, I think in the short term, you have some of these right. positive aspects. And what, before I forget, rates in the dollar, we, you, you, they've traded yeah. inverse to tech. And in the last few days, you've seen both the dollar weak and rates falling, and that should be a positive for tech. For sure, well. yeah. Below 105 on the DXY. But we, we talk about uh, small caps and European tech. I mean, is, the, is mega cap tech really still have chains around the ankles at this point? Well, so, I mean, there, there's some issues here. You look at large cap tech. Um, right now, it's the good news is its valuation relative to the market has come in by about 25%. The bad news is that it's still valued at about a 28% premium to the S&P 500. Over the last 10 years, that premium has been 11% on average. And over the last just five years, the premium has been 20%. So there's still, uh, even though uh, valuations have come in and come in at a faster pace than the broader market, they still haven't gotten back to that historical average. And if we are going to see this recessionary environment come through next next year, as you, as uh, Frank was talking about Mark Benioff's comments, you know, there's macro headwinds. If that comes through, that's going to be add further pressure to the tech sector in general. So I think well, Mark we... saw the biggest runs over the last. Yeah. Uh, so well, they, they haven't come in uh, as much as European mm -hmm. tech has. And small cap tech. Might we might we be seeing? Sectors. Speaking of small caps, speaking of small caps, might we yeah. be seeing a bit of a floor, even if it's a little for, false floor, forming under some of these names? I'm looking at C3AI getting a, a nice bounce this morning that it hasn't tended to get after earnings for the last couple quarters. HashiCorp similarly. We were just talking to MongoDB earlier this week, uh, which had a lot of upside. Nutanix has been running quite a bit higher over the last several months, you know, not only on results better than fear given the macro environment, but maybe rumors of acquisitions by companies uh, and, and perhaps even private equity kind of circling and, and looking at value here. Is that significant? Well, there, there could be some of that. But, um, you know, what I'm what I'm talking about in small cap tech is basically uh, valuations are somewhat attractive. So some of those names that you mentioned aren't quite um, attractively valued. They're priced on sales still rather than, um, you know, than, than actual earnings. You look in the S&P small cap tech sector, the S&P 600, there's 60% of the stocks in that sector trade at under 20 times earnings. In the large cap S&P 500, it's just 45%. So there's, there's more valuation there and they never saw nearly the run that some of the, the large cap did. And some of these names like a C3 AI, which you just mentioned, that did see a strong run during the uh, COVID days. So, I mean, that, that's a little bit different when we're looking at uh, small cap versus, you know, with small caps with, you know, steady earnings and, um, you know, established businesses and aren't 
trading on way future earnings. Yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be fun to watch uh, price action and sentiment going into these last few weeks. Paul, great stuff as always. Talk soon, Paul Hickey. Right, thanks, Carl. Have a good one. Let's get to mega cap cloud. Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Oracle all winning a cloud computing contract with the Pentagon, jointly worth up to $9 billion through 2028. This is part of the Pentagon's joint warfighting cloud capability, which replaced Jedi. This is an effort to rely on multiple cloud providers rather than just one. As I said, the successor to the Jedi contract that was originally awarded to Microsoft back in 2019. Amazon, if you remember, had contested Microsoft's win, causing the Pentagon to change its approach, creating the foundation for this current contract. Oracle also pushed back here, guys. Um, and I would say maybe that Oracle is really the big winner in this. A year ago, maybe thought that it wouldn't be able to be a part of this contract generated 900 million in cloud infrastructure revenue in the third quarter versus 20 and a half billion for AWS. Uh, so a big win here to get this government contract, John. I'm not sure there is a big winner. Maybe that's the point, right? There, there was no one big winner. And the conversation <laughs> has shifted since this was called Jedi. Um, you know, I guess the Jedi temple has been destroyed. Uh, and it's no longer about who's the one big winner going to be. There's more talk about hybrid and multi-cloud, which we continue to talk about on Tech Check, particularly in this growth slowdown, perhaps recessionary environment. We'll see what happens. But now it's about both and, not any single big winner. And, you know, as goes the Jedi, so goes the market, apparently. Well, yeah, as, as Webb Bush uh, said this morning, guys, uh, the Jedi deal circus show is finally over. Talk about the flashbacks uh, to a long time ago. Uh, coming up after the break, the CEOs of C3AI and HashiCorp, as we said, plus Disney Plus raising prices. Tech Check is just getting started. brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play. Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Got an upgrade of AT&T this morning with a 24 target. Our Julia Borston has more on that call. Hey, JB. Well, shares of AT&T jumped at the open, Carl. Then losing those gains, now that stock is down 
Fractionally, AT&T was upgraded from hold to buy by Argus, raising its price target to $24 per share. It's now just above 19. Argus citing strength in the company's mobility business and noting that management's strategic realignment away from entertainment assets has been validated, saying, quote, with the spinoff of Warner Media to Discovery, AT&T has finally moved past its long foray in long sad foray into the media business, saying AT&T's wireless business has been a star in 2022 as the company has added substantial numbers of subscribers despite a price increase. Shares of AT&T are up about 4% this year, while its competition, T-Mobile, is up 26%, and Verizon is down almost 30%. John, over to you. Julia, thanks. Let's turn now to C3AI. That stock is up um, almost 6% so far this morning on stronger-than-expected results. Revenue guidance coming in just under the consensus. Joining us now to break down the quarter in a CNBC exclusive is C3AI CEO Tom Siebel. Tom, good to see you. So um, I want to get right to consumption because that was a lot of the talk. You said uh, on the call that the move to consumption is complete and that it's increasing your engagements by an order of magnitude. Is it literally that? And you know, how do you expect the, your, your projections on how business is going to grow to smooth out over the next few quarters under consumption? Yeah, we did. Uh, uh, good morning, John. Uh, we we did in, uh, change our pricing model from a subscription-based model to a consumption-based model, which is consistent with the cloud standards, and that was very well received by the market. Um, and I expect that in in you know in a few quarters we'll be doing business with an order of magnitude more engagements in any given quarter than we have in the past. So. Uh, you know, business looks good. We pretty much exceeded our numbers across the board. Uh, it was well received by the market, and our, um, you know, our business looks very promising. I wonder, is consumption the new freemium, <laughs> in the sense that you know, a decade plus ago, uh, when when cloud and SaaS was first becoming a thing, particularly when it came to storage, there was a lot of this kind of get the uh, individual worker on board within the enterprise land and then expand. Is consumption a way of showing various enterprises that they really need this technology and getting value out of it? And then eventually they're going to want to move back to subscription once they uh, know how much they need to spend and, and are looking to be able to make that um, more predictable? Well, you're, you're, I think you're raising a very uh, important point. I mean, first, consumption-based pricing is the standard in cloud computing, whether we look at Google Cloud, AWS, Azure, uh, uh, Snowflake, you name it. The, this is the standard, and now we're in line with the standard. I think where you get to very large engagements, like C3 has at places like Shell and Baker Hughes, United States Air Force, what have you, uh, that the, that and this also happens at... at, at at Azure and AWS and Snowflake, uh, organizations will want to engage kind of large enterprise subscription agreements. So those still will exist. We mm -hmm. still will engage in those where people like, but uh, there's no question that uh, consumption-based pricing has become the standard and it's been very, very well received by our market. Well, it's certainly appreciated by enterprises that are trying to cut down on spending and only want to pay for what they use, but at the same time, your average contract value went from 19 million to just under 1 million. So that's what that model has done to your business. And I also wonder, you know, 
private equity and other corporates, they like the subscription model. They're looking for consolidation for a target to go after. So in a way, this makes you less attractive there. Does that matter to you now that your market cap is at, what, $1.2 billion? Um, I guess, do you care that that might make you a less attractive target? Uh, you know, we're not in business, uh, Deidre, to make ourselves a target for uh, private equity firms. Uh, we're in business to, to, to add value, bring value to our shareholders. And I think we have a plan to accomplish that. What if that is the best shareholder value? Oh, if at some point in time the, uh, that, that opportunity is presented to the company, the board will consider it in light of what's in the best interest of the shareholders. Hard stop. Tom, it's a really interesting point um, because your, your your point is, look, we could we could slash expenses right now and get a stock pop out of it, but it wouldn't be in the long term interest of shareholders. Where is the line between uh, effective cost management and, and doing it for show? We're in the software business. We have basically one expense and it's human capital. So we could throw this thing. Do we, I could make this company cash positive, profitable in 90 days. All I have to do is lay off a bunch of people. Now, that's not in the best interest of our customers, not in the best interest of our employees, and not in the best interest of our shareholders because we're trading off you know, short-term profitability for long-term growth. Uh, I mean, we have, I think, $860 million cash in the bank. There's no way we run out of cash. We have a clear path to uh, be running a cash-positive, profitable business uh, by the end of next year. So, uh, you know, we're off to the races. But I think for us to, for us to like, slash expenses to meet the requirements of some shareholder or some analyst, uh, honestly, I think that would be irresponsible. Tom, let's get to... Uh, the technology itself and how customers are using it now increasingly under this consumption model in this shifting economic period. Where are they finding the most value? What are they, uh, what, what sorts of use cases are they targeting to figure out what to do next, probably what's going to happen next uh, as they sort of sift through their data and the data that's relevant to their business? Uh, the largest commercial applications of industrial applications of enterprise AI are you know, stochastic optimization, the supply chain, supply network risk. That's big, you know, with, with all these supply disruptions. Demand forecasting, predictive maintenance for manufacturing equipment, predictive maintenance for aircraft, precision health, fraud detection, customer churn. Uh, this is, and we see this across industries, oil and gas, utilities, aerospace, uh, defense, intelligence, um, uh, health, telecommunications, financial services. And Tom, finally, um, this may be outside of your scope, but as a CEO in the enterprise AI space, I just wonder if you've been playing around with chat GPT from OpenAI. It's really had this viral moment over the last few weeks. Do you think that there are eventually enterprise applications that it could be disruptive in your space, this kind of technology? Yeah. Yeah, I actually have been playing around with it. I find it's an interesting piece of technology. And, you know, I'm not really certain how it applies to what I haven't found the intersection between that and what we do. But uh, I did get online. I have used it. And it, and I agree. It's it's pretty darn interesting. And, you know, one of these days it might pass the Turing test. <laughs> um, well, you know, scary times ahead. Just showed my kids Terminator <laughs> for the first time. Uh, Tom Siebel. Thank you. Thank you. As we had to break, check out shares of Atlassian, CrowdStrike, and Palo Alto Networks. Mizuho naming all three top picks this morning. Head over to cnbc.com slash pro to read more about that call. We're back in two.
your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play. Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston. In just a moment, we're going to talk about this report that Elon Musk's bankers are considering Tesla margin loans to help Twitter cut down on its high interest debt. But first, let's get a news update with Bertha Coombs. Hey, Bertha. Hey, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. The House has passed legislation protecting same-sex marriage. The landmark bipartisan bill also protects interracial marriages. President Biden has said he will proudly and quickly sign the legislation into law. Chevron says it will substantially increase capital spending next year. That includes large increases in funds for low-carbon fuel projects. However, capital spending remains well below levels over much of the last decade. Exxon also increasing capital spending to the top end of previous guidance, saying it will expand stock buybacks to as much as $50 billion through 2024. Gasoline prices are now below where they were a year ago. AAA says the national average for unleaded is $3 a gallon. That's down, or 3.33 rather, down a penny over the last 12 months. An analyst tells CNBC gas prices could drop below three bucks for most Americans by the end of the year. Back over to you, Deirdre. Bertha, thank you very much. Let's turn now to Tesla's tough week. The stock is down over 12% since just Monday as the EV maker faces some headwinds in China. And of course, continued questions over impact from Musk's Twitter takeover. New reporting shows that his bankers are now considering new margin loans backed by Tesla stock to cut into the $13 billion of debt Twitter took on from the deal. Joining us now, Wall Street Journal reporter Tim Higgins, who is also the author of Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. Uh, Tim, for all of the hand-wringing over Twitter and the distraction that it may be providing to Musk. Can you argue that Twitter, that Tesla fundamentals have really been affected yet? The, the fundamentals of Tesla have been affected by the overall market. Uh, the concern, right. uh, the concern uh, with investors, however, is that Elon is becoming distracted with Twitter, and that is a concern, especially as we go into a possible recession. Right? You would want your CEO to be fully engaged as the market con yeah. conditions deteriorate, and that's kind of ultimately been one of the big worries about Elon as he's pursued all these different things over the years, and it has been considered one of the big risks. Right. At the same time, you know, he says things like he can go from 80 hours to 120 hours and he can handle all of this. How does how do potential margin loans, as Bloomberg reported, maybe change that equation? Does that um, cause more worries for investors, maybe lead to more of a direct impact? Well, this spring, when the, the original Twitter financing deal included those margin loans, there was a lot of concern among some investors in Tesla that there would be an overhang, that this would introduce risk from Twitter into Tesla. And that is because essentially Elon has long been a cash poor billionaire. All of his wealth has been tied up in SpaceX and Tesla. And it was only recently that he's been unlocking that cash to buy Twitter. And so if 
the margin loans are called, he really only has a few ways to to to, to handle that. That's either sell the shares and, and and cover the loans or put up more shares. And so ultimately, the concern is that there be, could be some kind of uh, death spiral. That ultimately, uh, a lot of shares would go into the market and hurt the overall shares of Tesla's value. Hey, Tim, you know, one, one uh, thing people are watching is if, the, if this capital structure uh, truly gets uh, revamped, what is the pain threshold for a revenue decline, right? I mean, can they, uh, if they lose a billion in revenue, if it goes down into the threes, uh, have, you, have you looked at that and, and thought about uh, where maximum pain, where we begin to start to talk about existential risks to the platform? Right, for Twitter. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's the, that's the issue right here. You have these debt payments that are more than a billion dollars. At the same time, you're seeing ad revenue uh, collapse, or not collapse, but be pulled back as advertisers are worried about the future, about the kind of erratic or chaos at the company. And that's, that's the concern. So it's, in some ways, classic Elon that they would be considering using these margin loans to somewhat reduce the risk at Twitter. Uh, te- uh, Elon has a history of kind of focusing on the fire or the emergency in front of him um, at, and leaving those other issues of his empire to deal with at another time, right? So right now, the biggest problem he has is Twitter, and he is using potentially the resources of his kind of financial kingdom to try to address that. And we've seen that before, and it has put pressure on the other parts of his kingdom in the past. I think of 2016 when Solar City, the company that he was the largest investor and chairman, was in trouble. He had a lot of margin loans there as well. And it was seen by some as a bailout uh, when Tesla bought that company to get out of trouble. Yeah, but Tim, simplify this for me, right? Because that was also in a different kind of bull market scenario. What happens, one, if Tesla's stock price drops um, when there are these margin loans in place? And then two, does this end up being a three-legged race with Tesla and Twitter running together? If he's not able to turn around Twitter quickly, is there the concern that he'll need more loans, more leverage out of Tesla, does that start to hurt Tesla? That, that is a concern, right? Shareholders in general have been willing to, uh, if not hold their nose, uh, support his margin loans over the years, in, in large part because Tesla has uh, been a rocket ship up. The shares have continued to go up and up and up. But in the last year, we've seen these shares uh, fall, uh, increasing frustration among Tesla shareholders about some of his antics. They want him to get back at the wheel and focus on what's going on. And and you're getting to this point. In a rough financial market, uh, if these companies are essentially seen uh, as being tied together, there could be a Twitter overhang uh, on Tesla shares. Uh, The drama that's occurring in San Francisco at Twitter HQ uh, then is is viewed through the Tesla stock. That's the worry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Uh, Tim, finally, how do you think markets investors would react if Elon Musk gave up that CEO role at Tesla altogether? This is an interesting question that's been debated for years. There's a lot of people think that there is a premium, an Elon premium baked into that stock. When there was concerns that he was going to lose and be kicked out of the company back in 2018 among the the, the go private scandal or the pro, the go private issue, there was you saw the stock go down because this idea that Elon is is the vision, he is selling the hope that is baked into the stock for the future of the car, for the future of mobility. Uh, A lot of people are betting on Elon Musk through Tesla. Tim Higgins, always great to get your insights. Thank you. Talk to you again soon. Thank you. Coming up after the break, Disney Plus. 
raising prices and then the park in Shanghai reopens. Talk about some of the implications for Disney when Tech Check comes back. Disney Plus launching a new tier this morning while a price hike also goes into effect. Julia Borston has that for us. Julia? Well, John, in an effort to draw and retain subscribers and boost profitability, Disney Plus has a new ad-supported service launching at the same cost as its ad-free service used to cost before that one got a $3 price hike. Disney's saying that it has secured more than 100 advertisers for this new service and that ads will show up in the form of pre-roll and mid-roll spots. Now, this new ad-supported app is available everywhere except for Roku. The two companies have not yet worked out revenue sharing terms. Now, Disney's new ad-supported option is a dollar more than Netflix's version. And among all of these ad-supported streaming services, the only one that Disney costs less than is HBO Max. Kantar projecting that one in four Disney Plus subscribers could trade down to the cheaper ad-supported plan, a plan which former CEO Bob Chapek told me back in August would be accretive. Disney's ad-supported option comes about a month after Netflix's rival service, and it's worth noting that Netflix shares are up about 14 percent since it launched its ad tier on November 3rd, while Disney shares have fallen about 9 percent over that time frame. Moffat Nathanson predicts relative success for both of these, forecasting that Netflix could generate $1.2 billion in ad revenue, Disney plus $1.8 billion in ad revenue, both of these numbers, by 2025, and just limited to the opportunity here in the U.S. Now, the good news for streamers is that despite an overall ad slowdown, Display video ad spend, that is expected to grow at a compound annual growth rate of 8.8% in the U.S. between 2022 and 2027. That's half a percentage point higher than the average for overall digital advertising. That's all according to Forrester. And Disney and Netflix are driving a growing trend. Deloitte projects that by the end of 2023, two-thirds of all consumers in developed countries will use at least one ad-supported streaming service. That's up 5 percent from 2022. Now, the question is whether we'll see Netflix and Disney offer free ad-supported tiers. Just earlier this week, Netflix co-CEO Ted Sarandos said Netflix said that Netflix will have multiple ad-supported tiers over time. And we, John, are watching the potential in these free ad-supported streaming options uh, in the media world. They call them fast channels. Yeah. Julia, I want to go back to that Roku point, the fact that this new tier version is not launching on Roku. So give me your analyst take, your analysis here. Is this good for Roku because it's going to prove Roku's reach that they aren't able to launch on that yet? Or is it bad in that it might challenge Roku's relevance? I think, look, it is better for Roku if they can have all of the options, every single um, streaming service, including the ad-supported ones, on their platforms. And remember that Roku, A, has been struggling, and B, has been investing a lot in its own ad technology and having its own free ad-supported channel. So I suspect that these two platforms will work it out, if only because I do think it is beneficial for Roku to have everything on there and not have consumers say, hey, I want to trade down to this cheaper option. Why can't I do it on Roku. That's not good I just for wonder if it's better for Roku that it doesn't launch on Roku so that they can say, here's how they did before they were on Roku, and now here's how mm. they're doing with us. 
We'll I don't know, John. I feel like Disney Plus has a, is pretty ubiquitous on all of these platforms. So um, it'll be interesting to see what kind of power Roku has there. But remember, Roku mm -hmm. has been struggling in this environment, Deirdre. Right. Julia, thanks so much for the breakdown. Up next, Indiana sees TikTok plus multiple states move toward banning the app. That story is next. Don't go away. Welcome back. The U.S. government's security concerns over TikTok. They continue to grow multiple states, banning the app on government devices this week. Kayla Tausche is in Washington with all the latest. Kayla. D states are taking their own actions as the federal review into TikTok's big business drags on with no deadline in sight. Indiana launching two lawsuits against the company focused on the treatment of its data and the targeting of children with certain content. The state's attorney general calling the app a clear and present danger. Meanwhile, five Republican-led states are now banning the app on state networks and devices. Nebraska was first to do this in 2020, but now South Dakota, South Carolina, Texas and Maryland all joining in just this week. Maryland Governor Larry Hogan told CNBC this morning his actions followed information he received from federal officials. All of the federal agencies have been talking with all of the states about the threats, and yet the federal government has been refusing to take any actions at all. And uh, we felt that uh, in order to protect our systems, we needed to take these actions. TikTok's U.S. business has been under a regulatory microscope for three years. The Council on Foreign Investment into the U.S. first opened its investigation in November 2019. The following year, Oracle and Walmart struck a deal for a stake in the app and a plan to store its data. The Biden administration then inherited the CFIUS review in 2021. A year after that, a deal to ring fence its data appeared close. TikTok CEO even saying at the DealBook conference, the plan to relocate data of American customers, dubbed Project Texas, was expensive and challenging. New reports this week suggested government action that would determine TikTok's operating status in the U.S. could stretch into the new year. But a spokesperson told CNBC it believes it's still on a path to rectify national security concerns. The White House and Treasury declining to comment on the status of the investigation and whether there's any urgency to resolve it. Guys, back to you. Uh, remarkable, Kayla, and we'll be talking about that for a while. Uh, Kayla Tausche on TikTok today. Coming up after the break, the CEO of HashiCorp's with us. Stocks higher by about 8% after results. Don't go anywhere. see the Nasdaq is up more than 1%. You know it's up a lot more than 1%. Another earnings mover, HashiCorp. Those shares are up about 8% after delivering a beat across the board for Q3. Guidance for the current quarter coming in above consensus. So is there any read-through on overall cloud demand or is this just an outperformer? Let's bring in HashiCorp CEO Dave McJanet in a CNBC exclusive. Dave, good to see you. So, you know, steady growth here, 52% year over year. Backlog growing in the form of remaining performance obligations at $553 million. What are customers doing differently, if anything, in this belt tightening environment? I mean, they're still transitioning to the cloud. You're helping them do that in a secure multi-cloud way. Still lots of demand for that? Yeah, good morning, folks. Uh, yeah, I, th I think what you saw was really more of the same uh, that we've been doing for, for quite some time. I, th I think what's very clear to us that there is an infrastructure modernization cycle underway. 
uh, in the world of infrastructure as people are going from predominantly private data centers to cloud. You're seeing them all, you know, really around the world uh, going through this, that, that, really that cycle. And I think, you know, that's really what you're seeing, you know, flow through in, in you know, certainly our results. You saw that from Mongo and Snowflake and others that are in that category. And I think that is, that is really an inexorable trend uh, I think you were at the reInvent event last week, as as were we, and it was just remarkable to see just the scale of, of large companies that were there, you know, getting serious about the cloud transition. I think that's really reflected in all of our results. So these longer sales cycles that we keep hearing about, is that just a lot of the enterprise holding their stomach for a moment as the momentum in the economy shifts, or is that a new normal? Is it something that your sales teams are figuring out how to solve for because customers just want a different type of flexibility or has the overall demand picture shifted? Yeah, I, I think I go back to the kind of that, that core dynamic of, of sort of that, that infrastructure modernization cycle is very clearly happening. I think what's less clear is how that flows through the procurement process in big companies. I think that's really what you're seeing across the, across the globe is it's just a little bit more uncertainty as those companies uh, we all sell to large, large enterprises, and you know as they look at their own businesses and are perhaps more measured on their own uh, expend appetite in the near term. I think that's what you're seeing happen: is people just being a bit more applying a bit more scrutiny to their to their process. That just means you know the the the, the sales cycle is somewhat lengthened for everybody as that happens, and that's different from what you saw a year ago when when people were being a little bit more comfortable and confident in their own businesses. So I think to some degree that's just the normal. Uh, I think that you know that's the way cycles work. But you know, I think what we can hang our hat on is, is that the long-term technology cycles are very, very profoundly true, uh, irrespective of what's happening in the, in the, in sort of the finance departments of, of our customers. You know, I was traveling around Europe and Asia and North America over the last month, and it's incredibly, incredibly consistent that that, that long-term trend is there. You know, the, the procurement departments are, are what we all have to deal with. That's interesting, Dave. And I wonder, I mean, as you make your, your rounds at this point, what is the bigger motivator, price or some of the new features and products that you that you mentioned in your release? No, I think it's more sort of an acknowledgement that you know if my if my current uh, data center is where all my things run, I know how to run that infrastructure. What's very very clear to them all is, hey, now more of my applications are running on Amazon or on Azure or Google, and and they're really just trying to conceptually understand what that modern stack is going to look like. So. It's not really a near-term thing. It's not a feature here or a feature there. It's really a philosophical bet from those customers on what that new stack is going to be. And I think you know now we're seven, eight years into the cycle of, of sort of the realization that multi-cloud is the reality. And I think that vendor stack has become relatively clear to, to most people. That's what you see Mongo, you see Snowflake, you see Databricks. Certainly Hashcore is in that picture. And I think I think it's really much more that setting themselves up for the next you know 30 years of their infrastructure state versus any one particular thing. And I think that what lends that's what lends sort of the longer cycles to be what they are, is because these are deeply considered decisions. They're very, this is very, very valuable real estate for all of us as we, uh, as we try to engage with those customers. And I think that's really what's happening. It's, it's more oh. philosophical than it is a feature. Dave, got to address an elephant in the room. So uh, there's, there's rumor out there that a certain large networking player, you know, Cisco, is very attracted to HashiCorp. Uh, I don't know if you want to say anything about that. It doesn't hurt to be popular, but what's the value of partnerships with large established, maybe legacy technology companies from a sales, from a marketing perspective? Does scale help you? 
Yeah, I would just say, obviously, we don't ever uh, comment on rumors or speculation. But we, we, we're partners with many large companies. You know, if you go to um, if you go to a Palo Alto Networks event, you will see them talk about our products pretty much every time. If you go to F5 or or uh, or even VMware, right? These are deep, deep partners because because I think there's a level of pragmatism in the world of enterprise IT that perhaps doesn't exist in some of the consumer markets, for example, where our products drop into an environment with other things already there. And so, for example, you know, people use one of our products, Terraform, to automate the provisioning of Palo Alto networking gear. That's incredibly powerful and valuable to Palo Alto. They, they use Vault to authenticate the brokering of, of identity across those machines as well, because we're playing this bridging role. So that's just the role that we play. It inevitably puts us in the, in the path of, of heterogeneity. And I think that, that's, that's good for us, it's good for everybody, and I think that's the role that we play. We actually, you know, at the most recent side, we won partner of the North American part, Security Partner of the Year for Amazon uh, last week at reInvent, which just represents sort of how you know, firmly we're entrenched on the, it's on the most modern of applications, but that's typically an application that has to connect to something that's legacy, and I think that's just the nature of what we do. So we'll always partner with big companies. Got it, Cisco's very nice, but you're just friends. Dave, CEO of HashiCorp, thank you. Thank you. And if, if you missed part of the show, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing before we go. Fintech companies get a haircut. Plaid, the latest to tighten the belt, slashing 20% of its staff, about 260 employees, as follows Chime and Stripe layoffs last month. Despite these cuts, the companies still stand at massive valuations. Plaid, $13 billion. Chime, 25 as of 2021. But Stripe, once the most valuable startup in Silicon Valley, cut its internal valuation by 28% this past July. Uh, D, something I know you've been keeping track of. Yeah, and I would say that there's a huge difference between valuing your company at its last fundraise, which is what Chime and Plaid have done, versus cutting your internal valuation, which is known as a 409A. Probably a lot more realistic, John, given the macro backdrop. But a really important question is as venture capital firms head into year end and have to get their valuations in line, how are they going to mark that? Well, it's important to note here, Plaid is a leader, Carl, in what it does and its business continues to be attractive, but it still has to make this kind of cut. Yeah. yeah. Busy night tonight, guys. Uh, Chewy, Costco, RH, Docu, Lulu. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.